coming up on SBJ Spotlight. The Tokyo Games are on track. So far, our Chris Smith is on the ground in Tokyo. The realignment bombshell impacting college sports. Our panel of experts looks at how this shakeup could reimagine college sports. And we introduce another member of our 2021 Class of Sports Business Champions. All that, plus our Insiders Roundtable discussing the most important stories of the week, right now on SBJ Spotlight. Hi, I'm Abe Madcor. Welcome again to SBJ Spotlight. Up front today, what a week in the sports business. And we'll start with a quick look behind the headlines of the biggest stories we have reporters and guests around the country to provide their unique insights. First up, our Chris Smith has been on the ground in Tokyo since before the start of competition. Chris Smith, great to see you. You've been filing daily dispatches from Tokyo for more than a week. Tell us about the atmosphere in Tokyo. Things seem to have been going quite smoothly so far. Yeah, it's been an interesting one, Abe. And to tell you the truth, the stakeholders I talked to are thrilled, right? I mean, a few months ago, we weren't sure this was going to be happening. Everyone's here. The games are happening. And I, and I think like a lot of people predicted, they really just had to get through the opening ceremony. Once you're past the opening ceremony, let the sports take center stage. People start stop worrying so much about a lot of the, you know, the troubles that are circulating. And not to say that, you know, people have forgotten about COVID uh, and, you know, the threats that it's presenting. But I think we've moved on to a place now where stakeholders can be happy that we're here, we're moving, the Olympics are happening. Right. You and I have had some emails back and forth in the first couple of days you were there. The list of communication that you and I had was quite long of things to cover. Now that seems to have been strong because you're right. Things are proceeding and generally protocols are being followed. There have been certainly some positive case, but nothing that's overwhelmed Olympic organizers. Absolutely. I mean, I think for everybody, the biggest headache was how do you get into the country? You had to do all these COVID tests. You had to come through the airport, which was a six, seven, eight hour trip. I mean, you know, I, I talked to someone yesterday who said it was 11 hours just to get through the airport to make sure wow. your mobile apps were working, to make sure your test results were right, to go through all that paperwork. Once you're through all that, it's sort of that's the hard part out of the way. Now it's, you know, you're in the country. You can actually engage with the games with restrictions. Um, but, you know, now you're actually able to do your job. And I think people are excited to uh, to be in that position. You know, we've had uh, reporters on the ground at Olympics for 20 years. And and Chris, I've always found there's a, a disconnect sometimes between the reporters on the ground and the storylines that are happening in the host city and what might be message to the broader public, maybe in the United States. Are there any messages or storylines that might not be resonating or getting through to the public from Tokyo? I think, you know, stakeholders I talk to, there's some frustration there because they're thrilled. They're still, things are working. You look at this Herculean effort that Tokyo organizers have gone through. Uh, Olympics are challenging to begin with, and now they're doing COVID testing and quarantining and contact tracing. So you can imagine, you know, that there's a little frustration because when you look at the global press, it's more focusing on the negatives, on there's tests and that's bad. There's people who are unvaccinated and that's bad. Uh, instead of, you know, really trying to tell the story of how impressive this is on a logistical level. Uh, I think also, you know, you mentioned this is every Olympics that this happens, you know, there's stories that kind of take on a life of their own, right? We heard about the, you know, the cardboard beds that are going to stop athletes from having sex so they don't transmit COVID. That's not true. I mean, we know we heard about these beds years ago. Uh, you know, we heard all these stories about Toyota pulled the plug on its ad campaign at the last minute. 
that's not true. You know, sources I talked to say they had decided not to do that linear TV ad campaign a year ago, if not longer ago. Uh, and so I think a lot of those things, um, you know, there's sort of that digital media echo chamber uh, and these stories race around the world. And before you can even really correct them, everyone already has the wrong idea. So I think, you know, that's some of the interesting stuff that I've seen uh, in terms of, you know, what the message is coming out of Tokyo and what people are hearing. And Chris, we all know that the IOC has tried to make the Olympics younger, uh, maybe hipper, cooler. We're seeing that a little bit with some new sports. Skateboarding I watched on Sunday. There's three-on-three -three basketball last week. Surfing, freestyle BMX coming up soon. Like, what is working? And do you think they are starting to attract a new and younger audience? Because there does seem to be some energy around these competitions. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, that's very much the strategy, right, for the IOC. You know, they need to get younger. They need to attract this new audience when there's never been more competition for their attention. Uh, I mean, we just saw in the women's street skateboarding, two of the medalists were 13 years old. I mean, you want to talk about young, that's as long, you know, pretty much as young as you get. Uh, and so I think it seems to be working. There's definitely a lot of attention from, you know, the high ranks. We saw Emmanuel Macron and Jill Biden at the three on three basketball game between France and the United States. Uh, I was at the men's final for street skateboarding on Sunday and I bumped into Suzanne Lyons, uh, you know, the board chair for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. These are some big names and they care about what's going on with these sports that really are intended to appeal to people, you know, many, many years younger than them. Uh, and I can tell you, you know, leaving the, the men's event uh, at the skateboarding, there was a crowd of Japanese citizens waiting to see the medalists come out. You know, people do care about this stuff. And I, you know, I think that's going to resonate. Uh, so I can't really speak to, you know, kind of the TV side of things and, you know, how that's uh, impacting people around the world. Uh, but the sense I have is that, you know, there are some early dividends here and that things are moving in the right direction. Well, Chris Smith, you're going to be on the ground for another seven or eight days. We'll do this again, but I have been lived vicariously through your daily dispatches. I know it's an arduous grind, but it's an experience of a lifetime. I hope you're enjoying it, and we'll look forward to chatting with you more for your perceptions and observations on the ground at the Tokyo Summer Games. Chris Smith, thanks for being with us today, buddy. A seismic story has been the decision by the universities of Texas and Oklahoma to begin the process of leaving the Big 12 for the SEC. As we record this, the schools have yet to officially ask the SEC to join as 14-member league, but that seems a formality, and any new member must get 11 schools to vote yes. Four no votes would deny expansion. But we don't anticipate either institution to have any problems. So what's next? Joining me now are SBJ writers Michael Smith and John Aran and Rick Jones, Chief Creative Officer and partner of Fishbait Solutions, who I have talked to about college sports for years and has been working in the collegiate sports space for years and always has a very smart point of view. Michael, I want to turn to you first. What is next in this developing story? What are you looking for? Texas and Oklahoma have officially notified the Big 12 that they would not renew their grant of rights after this TV contract. That TV contract runs through 24-25. So what does that mean? Texas and Oklahoma are taking their media rights back from the conference, which frees them to pursue other opportunities, including membership in the SEC, which is the expected next move. I think Greg is playing both a short tail and a long tail strategy for the Southeastern Conference. Short tail is I have to assume there's language in his uh, aggregate rights deal with ESPN and the Walt Disney Company that allows for greater revenues based on expansion and specifically probably expansion of those two particular institutions. That's short term. 
But the long-term strategy is really a direct-to-consumer strategy. Look, we, we all know that the affiliate model will go away and that ultimately almost all sports entertainment content is going to be done on a, on a direct-to-consumer basis, on a subscription basis. And you just added two enormous tribes to your overall tribe. And I think that's the long-term play uh, for Greg Sankey. I can tell you, uh, Rick, that there is definitely language in ESPN's contract with the SEC that specifies exactly how much more ESPN is going to pay the SEC with those teams coming in. It's not necessarily going to be a windfall for the, for the SEC. I mean, they, they, they are, they're already making a lot of money from ESPN, and they're basically going to prorate that money if, if, if it looks at all like the last time there was expansion, they're going to prorate the money of, of, of those teams and just add in two more and ESPN is going to pay that. I think where we're really going to see from a media standpoint, what happens to the Big 12? I'm curious, uh, your thoughts on that, Smitty. Well, it, it's still possible that Texas and Oklahoma could play out the string in the Big 12 over the next four football seasons. That's a possibility. Is it a likelihood? I, I think probably not. The other eight schools that are left behind so far, they, they're saying that they're going to band together, but we'll, we'll see. You know, I think the longer this plays out, the, the less likely it is that they'll be able to stay together. You're already hearing reports of some of the leftover Big 12 schools reaching out to other conferences like the Big 10. And, and you know, really what it reinforces is that everything's on the table right now. Some of the Big 12 schools have even said that they would make financial concessions to keep, to keep, uh, keep Texas and Oklahoma in the mix. And uh, no, nobody really expects that to happen either. To quote Dr. Seuss, if I ran the circus, he, here's what I would do or where I think this could play out. I think you're heading to four super conferences mm -hmm. of 16 teams each. And if I was a betting man, I would say the ACC is going to have to probably take West Virginia because they're sitting out there all by themselves. And then they got to convince Notre Dame to come in. Um, in a way. The interesting part will be, can the NBC contract exist and add greater value to the ACC or placate Notre Dame with more value? Secondly, I think the Big Ten, the, the political uh, factors in Iowa, and Iowa's always been a very strong political state, as y'all know, they're not going to let Iowa State down. And so they're going to put a tremendous amount of pressure, I think, for the Big Ten to take Iowa. Iowa State, and then I think they take Kansas. It's another AAU school that meets the academic requirements in a unique way. Then you're left with five schools in the Big 12, and I think four of the five figure out a way to go to the Pac-12. And the reason I think the Pac-12 needs to do this, they need central time zone. They, they need the time zone mechanism to drive ratings and make it even bigger and make a stronger case for their network. But here's what nobody talks about a the money. Everybody assumes Jimmy Pitaro has a money tree in his office. You know, at the end of the day, how much more are advertisers going to be willing to pay for extended rights? How much more money can SEC officials pay? How much more money can CFP officials pay when you've added this many more GRPs uh, to the mix? You know, Rick, during the most recent NFL negotiations, ESPN paid a much a lower increase percentage-wise than all of the other networks. Why is that? 
because they didn't need the NFL as much because they had college football. They've planted the flag in, in uh, college football. So how deep are Jimmy Pitar's pockets? Well, I can tell you when it comes to the Big Ten, the ACC, the SEC, and maybe a Pac-12, they're very deep and he's very willing to, to pay those to keep competitors at, at, at bay. So I, I think that if you're a major college conference and certainly if you're one of these four super leagues that we, I think we all think uh, are going to end up developing, ESPN is going to find a way to pay for them. And I can't imagine that this hasn't already been predetermined. There's no I agree, Rick, totally. Yeah. this information without having all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And so I think it's a fait complete. You know, my phone's been ringing off the wall like y'all's has with this ruins college football and you know, the SEC is going to be too strong. And I've just got one word for everybody. Get better. I'm sorry. If you're the Big Ten, get better. If you're the ACC, get better. And, and you know, clearly the Pac-12. The, the one question I don't know, and I'd like to ask you this, John, is where does Fox fall in all this? Fox loves college football. Fox has planted the flag with college football. Fox feels like on Saturday at noon, they created their own window that's that's just for Fox on college football Saturdays. You can bet that, that well, I talked about Jimmy Pitaro's pockets. You can bet that Eric Strang's pockets are, are deep as well. And he's totally interested in renewing with the, the Big Ten and possibly taking the whole thing. And if you're George Kliakoff, you just got into your role at the Pac-12 on July 1st, or roughly there, and the entire landscape is changing before your eyes. And you have an opportunity, a real opportunity, to make your conference much stronger. Will he be one of the more aggressive suitors, do you think? Anybody for that one? I think he will, especially what John said about Fox. I mean, Fox loves that noon window. That's 11 o'clock central time. I, I, that's, I can deal with that. At 9 o'clock Pacific time doesn't quite work. At 11 o'clock central time window on Fox, I think works extremely well for, for you know, Oklahoma State and Oregon. I just also want to go back to something, Rick, you said, boy, Greg Sankey, is he playing with the chess pieces pretty adroitly or what? You know, it's kind of have lunch or be lunch, and he seems to enjoy lunch. This is a story we're going to continue to watch. Rick Jones, that's why we asked you to be on Spotlight, because you bring us, you make us think about things we had not thought of. I'm sure we'll be back in touch with you. Michael Smith, we'll see you down the road. And John Oran, we'll catch up with you later on our Insiders Roundtable. Thank you all for a very, very important story in intercollegiate athletics. When we come back, we'll hear from Larry Lucchino, an influential voice in sports business for many years and a member of the newest class of SBJ's Champions of Sports Business. Welcome back to SBJ Spotlight. Now we'll hear from longtime sports business executive Larry Lucchino, who talks with SBJ's Bill King as part of our Champions Conversation Series. Your approach to the job, your approach to what it meant to be the CEO of a ball club, the president of a ball club. We now see a bifurcation, right, of roles. There are the business people and there are the baseball people. And that was not the way it was for you. How 
were you received over the years as you as you continue to walk that path? Well, I do agree that uh, I was uh, in 1988 when Adrian Ben Williams made me the president of the team. And in the years afterwards, I was a uh, full service uh, on both sides of the table uh, president. I remember saying to people in 1988 that I will have a seat uh, at the table with respect to baseball matters, to be sure. And I never thought of it in any other way. Uh, but it was the, uh, uh, you know, the specialization of baseball in the uh, last few decades was really just beginning. It's um, uh, baseball used to be the preserve of uh, former players and uh, uh, guys in windbreakers. And, and uh, the players uh, were the first to, I think, professionalize their agency roles. And, the, and, uh, and baseball came along a little later. Now you're right, about half the team, maybe more, have a uh, president of baseball operations and a president of business operations. Uh, you can have that as long as you have a person uh, who's uh, working day to day, who has both in mind so that you don't uh, develop silos and uh, competition within the, or within the framework of the organization. So before we leave you, catch us up. How are you? Uh, how, how are you adjusting to life as uh, life as a, as a minor league owner and all <laughs> with that? I do. Uh, I am the principal owner of the team, and uh, and um, that's a little different. But I can't take the uh, work ethic out of me. Uh, uh, I still uh, work at it very hard. I was joking to someone recently that if I had a paper route. I probably throw an all-nighter or two on the paper route just because that's that's my character as opposed to my uh, uh, circumstance. Uh, uh, I enjoy it quite a lot. Last night uh, I was watching uh, the uh, Woo Sox game in uh, Lehigh Valley on my computer while I had the Red Sox-Yankee game in Fenway Park on television. So uh, it was... Uh, it's a plateful, but I enjoy it very much. Uh, I must say, I'm uh, eager to uh, to, uh, to work a little bit less, perhaps in the years ahead. But uh, I love the uh, the uh, uh, the work side. Maybe it's my family, maybe it's my city in Pittsburgh, or uh, whatever it is. Maybe it's my circumstances, but I've developed a pretty keen work ethic. And I'm happiest uh, when I'm able to uh, to do it. And certainly, I can uh, I uh, modulate my interest in the Red Sox, which is uh, both um, personal and uh, financial. And uh, with the, my interest in the uh, Woo Sox or the uh, Worcester Red Sox, uh, which is um, both personal and financial. And uh, and uh, I've got a lot uh, a lot to do, but um, it. Um, it's very challenging still and, uh, and very uh, gratifying. For more of our conversation with Larry Lucchino, visit sportsbusinessjournal.com. Coming up next, our Insiders Roundtable will discuss the top stories in the sports industry and give our predictions 
and People of the Week. Sports business journeys, in-person events are back. Reconnect with peers and create new relationships in person this fall while hearing from some of the industry's most influential executives. Here are the events you can't miss. In September, we kick off with our Thought Leaders Retreat in Lake Tahoe, followed by the Sports Facilities and Franchises Program and Ticketing Symposium in Las Vegas. In October, World Congress of Sports returns to New York City, where it was founded 20 years ago, and the buzz will continue in the Big Apple with the Game Changers Conference and Ceremony. November will be a busy month with the Brand Innovation Summit and Media Innovators, and we'll toast our new voices under 30 and 40 under 40 honorees on consecutive nights at the Lighthouse at Chelsea Piers on Manhattan's west side. In December, the big money will be back in New York for dealmakers in sports, and we'll finish the year with the Intercollegiate Athletics Forum, which we are taking to Las Vegas in what will be an exciting week for college sports. Space may be limited for some of our events, so learn more and register today at sbjsbd.com slash events. And if you can't be there in person, check out the programs through our virtual platform and engage in real time with attendees who are on site or tuned in from their offices. Either way, we look forward to being with you and helping you get back to business. Welcome to our Insiders Roundtable, where I'm joined again by our panel of experts to discuss some of the big issues of the day. In the spotlight this week are SBJ's John Rand and Ben Fisher, and our returning guest, Shira Springer, an SBJ contributor and Boston University lecturer. Welcome to each of you. Let's jump right into it. We're more than a week now into the Olympic Games in Tokyo. What is standing out for you most about these games? Shira, let's start with you. Well, I think a few things. First of all, uh, the quote unquote big losses by favored American teams. You have the U.S. men's basketball team losing to France. You have the U.S. women losing soccer team losing early on. You have the U.S. women's gymnastics team second to Russia in qualifying and sort of all the panic that ensues uh, when that happens. But I actually think it's a good thing for the games. I think it's a good thing ultimately for viewership and interest um, to not have the Americans be so dominant. The TV ratings for the opening ceremony were down about 40%. And I really couldn't care. I mean, we're gonna keep writing about them and we're focused on TV, but the numbers that really stood out to me were about Peacock which had its most streamed day, of course, on, on uh, Sunday. Uh, Peacock was one of the most downloaded apps on all of Apple iTunes. I've, I've been writing about, I think probably since Beijing in 2008, I've been writing about the digital Olympics and they have gotten progressively more digital, but this is a time if you're a youngster with a smart TV, you can talk into it and say, I wanna see archery and it'll take you right to archery. This is truly the digital games 
And the industry has to come up with a better way than sort of TV viewers in terms of count how to count the number of people watching. First of all, I agree with you a thousand percent, Shira. The occasional loss for the men's basketball team or the women's soccer team is only is only good for everybody as long as they do and make it out of group play and we're not letting And it's not good for me. Come on, the US men losing? Uh, I hated it. I, I mean, I'll take that game over over a 40-point win any day. At least it's engaging. It was it, I saw every second of that game because it was close. It was maddening, but it was close. It was good TV. Same with the U.S. women's soccer team losing. I mean, a little bit of fear of God makes everything a little bit, uh, a little bit more dynamic going into the second week. Um, another thing that 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 I've noticed is that I've gotten really comfortable with the Far East time zone. You know, when we first had this series of three consecutive Olympics and Korea, Japan, and China come together, we thought, "Oh my God, it's going to be so hard for sponsors and TV and everything." But at least for my schedule and my life, it's perfect. It's live events on 10, 10, 30, 11 at night. It's like a Monday night football night. And then I can wake up and watch a little bit of action before I get to work in the morning. It's really not so bad. And, um, and as far as, as far as like the, where we're watching it goes and the Peacock downloads, and that's, that's interesting for your beat, John, but I'm doing just fine on the NBC sports app casting through my TV and network. I, there hasn't been anything I haven't been able to watch that I wanted to watch so far. We've talked about Peacock. Have you been able to watch the events that you care about? I guess I'm asking, are you able to navigate through all the linear and digital offerings? You know, for me, it's it's a buffet that's too big almost, and there's too many options to choose from. And another thing that I'm missing is, and this may be because I haven't watched any of NBC's primetime coverage, I'm not getting the same communal feel that I usually get when watching and Olympics, the sense that we are all glued to the same event or tracking the same competition at the same time. I feel like we're all having our own individual Olympics. Sure, I loved what you said earlier about you feel like there's a lack of a communal experience and it's just too much going on. I don't know if that's a good thing for the networks who are trying to sell a single funnel, but it's just like what it really is like to be at the Olympics. And this is my first game, the first games watching the Olympics back home after covering the last two. And the idea that there's 40 different places you should be that day and you don't know which one, you just have to decide one and go with it. But then here's the point. You come back together at night and you compare notes. Maybe there's no one thing that's driving viewership like it did in the broadcast era, but my social timeline, my text messages, my, my social circle, maybe we didn't all watch the same thing, but we're all talking about the Olympics in some ways saying, hey, do you see the Australian coach? No, I was watching volleyball. And there's this cross-pollination that's really hard to measure and sell. So that's a real problem, but I don't think there's a lack of engagement in these games by any means. Yeah, and they're also not just selling that one funnel. They're selling across everything. I mean, if, if you're buying into the Olympics, you're buying into the, all of the Olympics and it's from archery to swimming and gymnastics. Yeah, I agree with both of you. And there isn't a lack of engagement. It's just how are we quantifying that engagement now with all the options available. Well, I find it interesting that you all think there isn't a lack of engagement in these games, because I think there's an obvious lack of engagement in these games. And I think the numbers prove that out, but we'll look deeper into the numbers as the games continue. Well, the NFL laid down the hammer and calling out players who are unvaccinated. Instead of any games are missed this season because of unvaccinated players, the team that causes the missed game will forfeit that game and players will not be paid. 
Ben Fisher, this is the league going right in and right at the locker room and a way for the league to try to get to having almost all of the players vaccinated without requiring that they be vaccinated. How has this been received? It's actually been better received than my Twitter timeline would suggest. Um, you know, five out of four out of five NFL players have started the vaccination process, at least. I'm told there's broad unanimity among the owners in supporting the commissioner's memo and these rules. There maybe is some 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 bickering because nobody likes the, the money to be messed with, but they view this as a perfectly appropriate thing to do. And, you know, maybe this is a distinction without a difference, but they really don't see it as a punitive hammer thing. They just see two things as being true. Their money's in jeopardy if games get canceled. And two, there's no good reason for these games to be canceled, unlike last year, when the vaccines are broadly effective and safe and at least minimizing the impact of a positive COVID case. I was quite frankly surprised and pleasantly surprised by how strong a stance the NFL took um, on the vaccine. And I think may have been the only move because I, I know they don't want to run into a problem where games are getting canceled because of unvaccinated players. But it was certainly the right move. And I think, you know, very rarely do we have a chance to applaud the NFL for doing really the right thing. And I think in this case, it was the right thing. I'm just curious, were you surprised? at how strongly they came out, particularly, and I, you can call it punitive, you can call it incentive to get vaccinated, particularly when it came to targeting unvaccinated players. If there was one thing I was a little surprised by last week is how quiet the NFLPA has been about this. I mean, I think it's pretty clear now that there was um, implicit or, or tacit support for that memo that went out from the union. They could have raised the stink about it. And I think that this is yet another chapter in the fascinating labor case study that is the NFLPA, because once again, they're sort of caught between their traditional obligations as a labor organization with their modern perspective on the business that a rising tide lifts all boats. And if the owners make a billion, they make half a billion, roughly. We'll also watch the messaging of this issue to players who are unvaccinated as this story progresses. Now it's time for our predictions and people of the week. Start with predictions. Ben Fisher, you're up first. This Saturday, the NFL is launching its new tentpole event, but Back Together Saturday, which is going to be a um, media-based event of all 32 teams doing a fan-facing event at training camp. It's meant to be sort of a, a midnight, uh, midnight madness for training camp. And my prediction is it's going to fall a little flat this first year. Um, maybe they'll build it up over the next four or five years, but you know, a practice-based telecast in the middle of the Olympics when there's not that much actual football going on yet, I think it's going to struggle to break through. Nothing the NFL does struggles to break through, Ben Fisher, but we'll keep an eye on that. Sheer Springer, your prediction. So all the wildfires and flooding in Germany and the heat at the Tokyo Games has got me thinking about the climate crisis. Uh, one thing that isn't talked about as much with the Tokyo Olympics is the fact that it could be the hottest summer Olympics on record. Um, average temperatures there are expected to be 90 degrees and you have that oppressive humidity um, in Tokyo. And all of that said, I think one of the big things or actually the big thing that sports organizations and event sports event planners are going to have to deal with in the future is the climate crisis. That will be number one on the agenda. How they will plan for, navigate, and have plans B, C, D 
for when climate really um, creates problems with the competition. My prediction, and I've been consistent on this one for weeks, is that Dish Network and Sinclair will fail to reach a deal on the Bally Sports RSNs in the next few weeks. Why is that important? Well, the fact that Sinclair won't be able to convince Dish to do a deal has the real potential to throw the regional sports business as we know it into disarray. I'm not overstating this, Abe. The way we consume sports locally is about to undergo drastic changes. And the frustrating part to me is that nobody has a roadmap that's going to tell us exactly how that's going to look. And a quick follow to that, John, because you're saying if DISH doesn't re-up, that's going to lead for other operators not to renew. It creates a roadmap for other operators to say, if you can't do a deal with DISH, we're not going to pay for that. Sinclair needs that revenue that comes in from DISH to help support the RSNs. My prediction is that through August 9th, NBC's Today Show will kick off every morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time with breathless excitement, alerting viewers of, yes, all the news around the Tokyo games. This isn't a negative or a criticism. It's what any network would do after such an investment in programming. But if you want the latest in global affairs or stories impacting government or society, you'll have to wait because every two years, yes, the news of today's show takes a backseat to the exciting results from the games, the medal count, the wonderful accomplishments of the athletes, and the stunning exploration of the host city by today's show's talent. It's the best marketing and promotional vehicle the Olympic Games and NBC could ask for. And maybe these days, such a break from the polarizing grind of daily news is welcome. But this is one prediction I'm very confident in. NBC's Today Show will be all Olympics, all the time, aside from a brief in other news segment through August 9th. Now let's go to our people of the week. John Aran, let me start with you. What a great segue, Abe. Person of the week, how can it be anybody other than Molly Solomon this week? There are only three people at NBC who have held the, the position that Molly has overseeing NBC's Olympic coverage over the past three decades. There's the legendary Dick Ebersaw, the talented Jim Bell, and now Molly Solomon. This is a huge job, a massive one. Dick Ebersaw famously used to sleep in NBC's production compound throughout the games just to stay on top of everything. That falls to Molly Solomon now, and I know a lot of people inside and outside of NBC are rooting for her. Absolutely. Ben Fisher. Mark Bedane worked for the Los Angeles, Oakland, and Las Vegas Raiders. He worked in three different cities for a team that's persistently in the bottom handful of teams in revenue in the NFL. And he also oversaw the improbable yet undeniably successful relocation for the Raiders from Oakland to Vegas into Allegiant Stadium, where now it is, uh, it is raising its revenue very, very rapidly. Um, Mark Bedane abruptly stepped down about a week ago. And honestly, despite all of those fascinating details of his career, he, his name doesn't appear a lot in the pages of the Sports Business Journal over the last few decades. He was beneath the radar. He was an effective operator. And that's why I wanted to call him out as my person of the week on his way out the door. I am going to go with Ted Lasso. For the uninitiated, he is the head coach, the fictional head coach of AFC Richmond, um, a team that's recently been relegated, an English Premier League team that's recently been relegated. He is folksy and kind, originally from Kansas, um, and he has brought 
his soccer team together, although he doesn't know much about soccer. And he is back for a second season. Um, and he is struggling with a new team psychologist. And it is worth a watch. Um, and I think one of the things that has surprised me is what I hear from actual real life professional coaches. They are watching and they are picking up tips from Ted Lasso. I absolutely love that, Sheer. I hope everybody is watching Ted Lasso because it is awesome. I'll transition and I have two. First, former ACC commissioner, John Swafford. He and his wife, Nora, finally had a fitting goodbye last week at ACC Media Days in Charlotte, where industry leaders paid tribute to one of the most humble and respected leaders in sports. New ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips announced it was naming its conference football championship game MVP trophy and renaming it the John Swafford MVP Award. To see the likes of Greg Sankey, Kevin Warren, Mike Oresco, and Bernadette McGlade, among so many others, fly in and fly out for a two-hour reception shows the deep respect they all have for Swafford. Congratulations, Commissioner, and enjoy the next stage of your life. And my second person, ESPN's Ben Cafardo, who honored his late father, Nick Cafardo, with very fittingly, with eloquent remarks, inducting his dad into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Ben spoke gracefully about the impact his talented father had with his writing for the Boston Globe. And as being from Vermont, I can attest how Nick Cafardo had a huge influence on sports fans throughout New England. He was a true pro who died suddenly in 2019 doing what he loved, covering baseball. And his son, Ben, is one of the true pros at ESPN's communications department and is making his father, looking down from above, very proud, no doubt. Well done, Ben Cafardo. That's a great one, Abe. Yes, second. So that wraps up our Insiders Roundtable. Thank you to Shira, Ben, and John for joining us. And thanks to all of you for watching us on SBJ Spotlight. We'd love to hear from you. We've been doing Spotlight now for more than five months. So if you have thoughts or comments on what we can do better or ideas for the show, please email them to us directly at spotlight at sportsbusinessjournal.com. And we'll see you again in two weeks for another look at the key issues in sports business. Thank you for watching and please take care. We'll see you in two weeks.